hey, maybe you've had this experience. You're in an airport or a bus depot or someplace, and, you know, they've always got announcements going on about, uh, you know, this flight and that flight and this name and that name, and you're just kind of sitting there because you're too long in the lineup of Tim's getting your coffee and you're just enjoying it, and then you're sort of ignoring that because it's just noise, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, that's my flight. They changed the gate, and then you just bolt and you have to run. Have you had that experience? Yeah, some have. You know, I think I just want to say that we hear this thing about our day of fasting and prayer next Saturday, and I think for many of us, we just sort of think, well, yeah, you know, that's for everybody else. Well, this is the announcement to say, no, it ain't. You know, one of the things that Jesus says is quite interesting. He says, when you pray and when you fast, that, 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 you know, don't wear sackcloth and ash and all this kind of thing. And so the, the thing is this, is that Jesus expects us to fast. It's just part of our, our spiritual discipline, part of the way that we connect in with God. And so when we talk about next Saturday and our day of fasting and prayer, which you know lasts the whole day, but our focus time uh, is, is here from 10 till 3.30 with our seven praise breaks, as the psalmist says, seven times a day, I praise the Lord. That's for everybody. It, it is actually for you. Uh, to plan to be here if you can, to certainly participate in the day if you can, even if you can't be here, all of that sort of thing. And so I don't want you to just hear the droning on of the you know, airline flights that have nothing to do with you. No, no, no. This actually is you. And Jesus is saying, hey, when you fast, come on down at uh, 10 o'clock next Saturday as we just sort of uh, gather together to worship our God and to hear from him and to express praise and delight to him. So please, please, please don't think that that is for everybody else. It actually is uh, for you. And I know that some people, you know, health and pregnancies and all these different things, you know, you can't fast away from food, but there's other kinds of fast you can participate in. So however you can, however you can join, join us in that, please consider, I think it's going to be just a great, dynamic, and important time uh, for our fellowship. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Almighty God, uh, it's good to sing your praises and to consider... Ah, oh, your glorious grace. And really, you know, that, that, that hymn, that, that portion that you inspired the Apostle Paul to, to use in the first part of Ephesians, out of what we just sung, out of what we just reminded of, flows really the whole rest of, of this epistle. And just some of the uh, realities of life and the blessings of life the challenges of life that flow from that and so as we just continue on in our study here lord i ask holy spirit that you'd use your sword uh, to cut deeply into our lives to remind us of your great and glorious grace and to inspire us and equip us and empower us to live out the implications of this great, great truth. So be with us now as we think about how we live that out and what some of the implications are as we go into your word. We pray through Christ. Amen. So the truth is it can kind of get really overwhelming, can't it? Life. And uh, we can get to the point of sort of uh, emotional and intellectual and maybe even relational exhaustion. I mean, if we think about the last uh, three or four years, man, it was, it's, been, it's been tough. 
It has been really hard. I mean, on top of all the regular stresses and strains of life, you know, of, of family and work and community and, uh, and all these different things, on top of that, uh, we saw, like, you know, four or five years ago, really the, 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 the dividing and the polarization of, of society quite a bit, didn't we? I think it kind of bled up from the, from, the, from the U.S. and some of those things, and we could, we could just sort of feel the right and the left and the conservatives and the liberal and progressives and, all, and just the tensions rose. And, and, then, and then in the midst of that, here comes COVID, putting all kinds of stress and strain on society. And, and all of a sudden, uh, this, this division became, became a, another focal point, and it was so emotional, and, and in society, and even in the church universal, and even, and even in the church here, you know, people, people have been hurt, and people have, have been uh, felt accused, and people have felt abandoned, and people have felt ignored, and, pe- and, and you know, this, and friendships have become strained, and, and it just has sort of, you know, been, been really, really hard, and we get so emotionally distraught and exhausted. It's like, ah. Oh. And then uh, just, you know, well, we find out then there's a war in the Ukraine which reminds us of the other conflicts which we tend to ignore that are going on in, in Africa and other places in the world. And, and the news is full of it. And, and when we see hatred unleashed and, and it just gets so, so exhausting. And we can get to the place where we just sort of feel Man, what, what hope is there? How can, how can this possibly be? But you know, the truth is, as we, as we saw last week, with these conflicts and how these things turn out, we really shouldn't be surprised because what we looked at last week is sort of on, the, um, on, a, on an individual level uh, that, the, that the Lord of the earth, Satan, uh, is, is at work bringing about destruction and the desires of our flesh and the turning inward and the selfishness that we have and the inability to hear other people because we're so focused on our needs and our wants and our desires and then, and then God saying, okay, you know what my wrath is? My wrath is I'm going to withdraw my hand. I'm going to withdraw my, my, my protection of those things and I'm just going to let people be people and do what they do since you want to abandon me anyhow. And, and so when we think about that, it shouldn't surprise us. But man, it breaks our heart. And it exhausts us. And we can begin to lose hope and we begin to just sort of give up, I guess. Shouldn't be surprising. But you know, the, the truth is what happens now is because that's the reality, the Apostle Paul, he just sort of carries on with this same theme that we looked at last week, but, but there's a slightly different twist on it. He comes down from a bit of a different angle, where last week it was sort of, um, the, the focus was on, was on the individual a little bit, and the focus was on, on the Father and, our, and, and this, uh, this sort of vertical relationship we have with God. In, in these next few verses, in the, in the second half of chapter 2, it's sort of the same theme, but the focus, instead of being individual is sort of corporate and instead of the father being sort of the main actor and playing in it it's the son but it boils down to a similar thing where again and again and again we're faced with conflict but here you know this there is so much in these verses we could be here for a long time but I'm going to I'll try and contain myself. But it boils down to this. Here, here's what it is. So here's all I want you to remember. Okay? Here's, here's the main thing. That all the time in life and in society, in your workplace, in your homes, in your friendships, in all of these different things, we are constantly faced with a choice, whether it's work, family, church, society, whatever. We can choose 
destructive exclusion or glorious harmony. We get to choose a hundred times a day probably. In all of our conversations and the circumstances we face, we get to choose, am I going to be an agent of destructive exclusion or am I going to choose to say the words and do the things and hold the attitudes which leads to a glorious harmony? Okay, that's what I want you to remember. It's what I want to invite you to when you're going to work tomorrow, when you're going to your family this afternoon, whatever the case may be, that when see, feel, begin to feel the tensions rise, to ask yourself this question, all right, right now, am I going to be an agent of destructive exclusion or am I going to be an agent of glorious harmony? Now, for some of you, you already know that, and it's easy for you, and so you can go back to your wordle or whatever it is you do when I'm normally preaching. But for some of us, it's a bit of a struggle. I don't know about you, but, but I was sort of raised to, to work on the side of destructive exclusion. That's kind of my, I mean, if you think about, when I think about my family stories, my family stories which shape the family, you know, you talk about your ancestors and so on. My family stories are all about my grandfather who put acid in his father-in-law's engine of his little machine for his side business because he owed him some money and wouldn't pay him. Okay, I'll wreck your machine. Take out your business. My uncle who owned another business who would smash windows if guys wouldn't pay him for his money. These are my family stories. These are the heroes of my family. So I was raised for destructive exclusion. Somebody does something to me, I was, the way I was raised, okay, it's all out war, man. You don't take anything. And then the exclusion, I remember when I was, I was, I was just first here, not long after Bible college, and my friend Dave Mullaney says to me one time, your problem, Jones, is that you write people off. That's not right. And it was true, because that was my practice. I mean, after a little while, I was just like, cut out of my life, just done. Exclusion. That's, 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 that's how I was raised. That was my, my flesh coming out. Destructive exclusion. Maybe some of you were kind of raised with the same, the same thing and it's, it continues to be a challenge. So for people like me, if it continues to be a challenge, let's, let's kind of work our way through this and see what the Holy Spirit has to teach us as we dive in. All right, so uh, this passage, he, he just kind of starts off the same way as he did with the individual thing. In the first uh, few verses of this new focus, he begins with verse 11 and 12 with this. Here's our problem. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's us, by birth, and are called uncircumcised. Now, you need to understand when it has that there, I mean, we just read it uncircumcised. Blah, blah, blah. But this was, this was a term of derision that the Jews had for the Gentiles. It meant unclean, cut off. You who are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done, by, uh, done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizen in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Man, there's so many problems packed in here. Let me just kind of pull out a few here. The first problem is we forget. Twice in these verses, the Apostle Paul says, hey, I want you to remember, I want you to remember, I want you to remember how things were. How things were for you, how things were in the world for before Christ. It's so important he just underscores it again and again. You see, here's why. When we remember the way things were, 
When we remember what life was like, what the world is like, what I was like, when I remember the situation that I was in before Christ and then I remember what Christ has done, then all of a sudden I begin to approach life with an attitude of humble thankfulness and a greater sense of perspective, right? I mean, when I think about what I'd be without Jesus, where the world would be without Jesus, how I acted without Jesus, how I was this, you know, definite agent of, of destruction and exclusion. When I think about those things and I think about what my destiny was and how my relationships were and my view of the life and the lack of, when I think about those things, then I can be just humbly thankful. And when I'm humbly thankful, all of a sudden my attitude towards other people changes. Because I've got a bit more empathy, a bit more understanding. And I gain some perspective. In light of what God has done in Christ for me, how big of a deal is this situation that I'm about to involve myself in? And so, and so when, we, when we remember, our attitude is different. You know, I was listening this week to a podcast, the Rational Reminder podcast. And on it, I had a guest, Leonard Mildenov. Now, he is a theoretical physicist. And what's interesting about him is he, his most recent book is called Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. And it all has to do with the research he's done with effective neuroscience and all these different things. And the reason he did it is because you think, what in the world is a theoretical physicist who co-authored a bunch of books with uh, Stephen Hawkins? What's he doing talking about emotions? We're talking about physics here. Like if there's anything more math than physics, I don't know what it is. And his whole deal was he was exploring and talking about how, how our emotional well-being and how a physicist's emotional well-being and emotional state and this core affect and all these things, how it affects the work of physics. It, it's kind of a, if you're kind of weird, it's kind of a fascinating uh, interview. Because what he's saying is that, listen, you need to understand that your emotions affect how you receive data, how you uh, process data information, and the decisions that you make. And so this is the whole thing that what Paul is saying here. Listen, you need to remember where you were at. You need to remember how things you're at. Because if you approach life with an attitude of humble thankfulness and a greater perspective, the way in which we will interact with each other when potential conflicts arise is so different than if I come at it with arrogance, hurt, defensiveness, shrunken world where I'm at the center, it just affects how we get along with each other. So we all begin to say, your first problem is, is you forget. You forget, Alan, the way things are without Jesus. And he goes on and he says, the second problem that you guys have, which is causing all kinds of problems, is that you make idols. You make idols out of good things and things that are good. You turn them into an idol and begin to govern your life and all of a sudden they become a relational barrier. And the way in which he does that, he says, listen, um, you who were uncircumcised, so-called by the uncircumcised, and then he uses a little phrase, done in the flesh by human hands. Now, that little phrase, made by human hands, done by human hands, what does that usually refer to in the Bible? Like you've read this book and Made by human hands, it's a code language for making an idol, right? I mean, think about the Old Testament. And what it is, you know, they, they worship by idols made by human hands. That's the whole thing. And so what Paul is doing, this is, this is mind-blowing if you're a Jew. For us, we just kind of skip over it. But you need to understand that, that for the Jews, uh, circumcision 
was the linchpin of the whole deal. It came to stand for the entire law. It was the thing over which they would live or die. It was the marker that you could be sure this person is a Jew. It was how you know, conversion needs to happen. needs to be circumcised. You're a proselyte. All of these different, it was a central thing. And what Paul is saying is that, listen, guys, we've made circumcision an idol. We've made it the be-all and the, it's a staggering thing that he would take the center of the law and call it something bad, call it an idol. Because it became something that separated people. It was something good, a sign of the covenant, a message of belonging, a seal, a seal of the family. But they made it something bad. And we can do the same thing. We can take the good things of life, the blessings of life, wealth or pleasure or freedom or sex or health or safety, or family. We can take all of these kind of, these great and good blessings, and we can make them an idol in our life, and all of a sudden we begin to view every relationship and every circumstance through that lens. How does it affect my family? How does it affect my health? How does it affect my sexuality? How does it affect my freedom? And all of a sudden these things, we begin to run our life and uh, dictate our relationship on things that are good, but we've made them bad. We've made them an idol. And it causes all kinds of relational problems. Just as Paul said, this linchpin of Jewish identity has become an idol. And it's become a barrier that destroys relationships. And then he goes on and he just sort of quickly says five of the things about the state that we're in that Christ brings us out of that we can change and be thankful for. He says, first of all, listen, you are separate from Christ. Separate from all of the spiritual blessings held in the heavenly realms that Dave's song just led us through and reminded us of. He's saying, listen, uh, you, you were cut off from all of that stuff. None of that stuff. You weren't predestined. You weren't adopted. You weren't uh, saved. You weren't the family of God. You weren't sons with the Holy Spirit. In fact, you were completely excluded from citizenship. You didn't belong. You didn't belong to God and you didn't belong to each other. You know, it's interesting, as we, as we go through this passage, uh, temple imagery is sort of uh, the unseen foundation of this passage. And it just sort of peaks up every once in a while with words like wall, uh, walls and temples and this sort of thing. And it's, it's this whole thing about the citizenship of Israel was centered in on the temple. And the thing about the temple is that Gentiles were excluded if you weren't a citizen, if you weren't a, a Jew, if you weren't a, a child of Abraham in the flesh, then you didn't get out. And so, you know, as a matter of fact, it was so severe and so serious that in the temple, around the temple, they built, they built about a five-foot wall. And they've got, the, they have these in two copies in the Middle East that they've, archaeologists have discovered. And this is the sign that it said on this wall, just outside of, you know, the Gentiles could come so far, and then, this does, and then there's this wall, about five feet high. It said this in a couple of different languages they wrote it. No stranger, no foreigner, no Gentile, that's what that meant, is to enter within the balustrade, that's that little five-foot wall, around the temple and the enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. I mean, in other words, he's saying that, listen, if you don't belong, if you're not a citizen, if you're not a Jew, and you come onto my turf, you start messing around with my things, you start criticizing or being, even trying to participate in my good stuff, I'm going to kill you. Because you're not a citizen, you don't belong. 
We hate you and you hate us, and so just stay out. This is the level of animosity that was there between Jew and Gentile. He says, listen, you are not a citizen. You are separated from us. You are hated. You don't live our style of life, and you don't worship the way in which we worship. Get out. He goes on, he says, you know, that's because you are foreigners to the covenant. The covenant which bound Israel to God and bound a Jew to Jew and people to people. You are foreigners to that. You don't belong in this covenant. And then because of these things, you are without hope. You are relegated to destructive exclusion and eternal separation from God and his people. That's the way you were, says Paul. That's the reality. You're on the outside looking in and you couldn't even think about coming across that barrier to get in. You are without hope. Why? Because ultimately you're without God. You're living your life without God. And Paul's saying, listen, that, that was your state. Remember. Remember the state that you were in. Remember the animosity, even though you maybe even didn't realize it, between you and God. Remember how you're separated from people and there was no way to, to cross that void. Remember that you had idols in your life, things that separated from you, things that caused conflict within you. And you couldn't get past them. Remember these things. Because that's the place that you're in. That's your problem. And he said, but also, let's move on. Because Christ has a solution. Verse 13. But now. That's a little thing he's saying. I'm going to change topics, you know. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Next slide. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed, kicked down, wrecked, ruined the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Access to the Father by one spirit. This is the solution of Christ. The first thing he says is, listen, you are brought near by his blood. Brought near by his blood. Now, some scholars say that this, this verse here, verse 13, that it's kind of the core, it's kind of the center, it's, it's the middle point, the main point of what Paul wants to say in this section here. It's this whole thing about, first of all, you are brought near. You're brought near by God. And so the smart scholars tell us that, listen, what underlies here is a couple of verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Could have sang that song because that's what that verse is. Underlying it. And Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19. And these are, are, are verses... First, there were verses that meant about Israel in exile, coming back and being able to worship in the temple again. But then they came to understand that means, oh, it's more than that. This is about Gentiles coming to the temple to worship our God. 
And what he's saying is that, listen, those of you who are far away, all of us who are far away from God, by the blood of Christ, you are brought back to the place where you can worship the one and the true God. And he, he says that in verses, uh, this verse early, and then later on he says it boldly in verse 17. And what he does is, is he takes this concept of worshiping God, this idea of worship, and it's sort of like bookends for what he's saying. And he's saying it starts with worship and ends with worship, all the stuff that God does, because worship is the way in which we express that we are brought close to God. And it's a marvelous thing. Worship lies at the center of this, gathered together as God's people to worship Jesus, for all that he has done. But don't miss this. The emphasis of this passage, there's a nod to the vertical relationship of worship and God. But the emphasis of this passage is our horizontal relationship. How we're connected together. How enmity and hatred and frustration and pain and sorrow and exclusion and destruction is destroyed in Christ. And what he's saying is this. Listen, what you need to understand is it costs Jesus his blood to bring you near to each other. It costs Jesus his blood so that we could get along. It cost Jesus his blood so that we could take our differences in culture and opinions and backgrounds and thoughts and feelings and take all of those differences and put them in the context of this is under the blood of Jesus. It cost him his blood for us to overcome all those differences that separate us all too often. It took Jesus' blood to take those things which become idols in our life, that become so easily the things and the lens through which we see everybody. It took his blood to wash those differences away so that instead we could have glorious harmony instead of destructive exclusion. And there's this invitation to us in this passage to ask ourselves this question. What differences between you and me, what arguments, what viewpoints, what hurt feelings? What issues? What are those things between you and me are bigger than the blood of Jesus? Because you see, if I cut you out of my life, if I do what Mulaney said I was doing, I joined you just write people off. If I do that, what I'm saying is that this deal that we disagree on, it's more powerful than the blood of Jesus. It's more valuable to me than the blood of Jesus. I don't think about that because I get all worked up over why I'm ticked off at that moment. And Paul's saying, listen, remember, remember how it was. Remember how it was where you just unleash your anger or your hatred or your feelings of hurt or whatever that thing is and hold on to it and, and just put that against the cost that Jesus paid to wash that away and make us one. Is that really more important than the blood of Jesus to you, Alan? Is that really more powerful in your life, Alan, than the blood of Jesus? Is that hurt so much greater than the forgiving blood of Jesus that you'd allow this issue to keep separation from us? 
No. Jesus brought us near to God in worship by the blood, but he also tied us together by the blood. It cost him a lot. We're not supposed to squander it. And he said, not only that, but, but he actually he kicked down all of the barriers. The dividing walls of hostility, or actually hatred is maybe even a better, a better word. And there's, there's, a, there's a double picture here on what Jesus did. The first is this image of what I told you about, that wall, um, where it separated Gentiles, you couldn't compassion you know, upon pain of death. It, it, the first image is, hey, in the temple, you come to worship God, I'm going to push that down, I'm going to kick that down, that barrier is going to be gone. No longer are you barred from coming physically into the temple. It, it, there's a trace of the wall that's right there. I sat on it with, with our tour guide, who's a Jewish guy, and it was just kind of stuck on me. Like, you know, this, this, this Messianic Jew who believes in Jesus was sitting on this wall that used to divide us, and now we can sit on it together as brothers in Christ. The other thing it has to do with is, is that also the bearing war is, is the law. Because what had happened is that this good thing, this blessing called the law, which displayed the character of God and kept people safe and all of those things, had become not what God intended to be, but it had been used now all of a sudden as a means of hatred, a means of exclusion. And that's what it means by, by he kicked down this, this barrier of the law. It's not that the law didn't any longer show God's character, it did but its use to separate and kick people out was gone. So he took away that barrier. And the third thing he said that Jesus did is he made a new, peaceful, or harmonious humanity. He made a new humanity. They were divided, but at the cost of his blood, now all of a sudden there is a new humanity. And the instrument of our unity, the means of our unity, the way in which we can get over these things which so easily divided us is not in agreement on issues, but the blood of Jesus. Because there's all kinds of things that you'll never convince me of because you're wrong. But it doesn't matter. Because our unity is not based on whether we agree on this situation or that situation, this or... No, our unity and our relationship and our love for each other and the way in which we treat each other is not based on us coming to some kind of intellectual agreement. It is based and rooted deeply in the blood of Jesus and his work on the cross. That's what binds us together. In spite of our differences. And then... After the work on the cross is done and we accept that, then verse 18 says, and now the Holy Spirit, as you walk and as you live and are led by and empowered by and enabled by the Holy Spirit, we can live in the kind of unity that God desires and in truth we wish that we could have too. You know, he says, listen, my blood and the work of the Spirit has created a whole new humanity. Used to be two kinds of people, Jew and Gentile. That's how they divided it. And now the two have become one. And what's really interesting, you know, there's a couple of different Greek words that, that you can translate new, that mean new. And one of them kind of means the word like uh, new or fresh. Like if you think about cars, let's think about cars for a minute. So, you know, a car comes off, you know, it's the 100,000th car that comes off the assembly line. And it's new, hasn't been driven yet, and, and then you buy it, 
and you've got yourself a new car, right? That's one kind of, that's one kind of new. It's fresh, it's new to you. But there's another word for new. Another word for new. That former word is neos, but there's this other word, kainos. And it means something that is of new, of a completely different kind. It's kind of like the first car that was ever made. A completely new way of transportation. A completely new way of how people got around, all of these things. And this is the word that's used here. It's this word that means, doesn't just mean fresh, it doesn't just mean, hey, you know what, life's different now. No, 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 it means that we and Christ are a completely new, different creation. That all of a sudden, it is something that has like never been seen before. Because our separation into different kinds of people in Christ is wiped out and we are made one. We are fashioned by God into a qualitatively different being than has ever been gone before. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free. All of a sudden, this new humanity, because God says, I'm going to make you new. I'm going to, I'm going to erase in my blood these differences that are causing animosity between you and put you back as one humanity. And that's expressed in relational glory. Verses 19 through 22. Let's take a look at that. Relational glory. Consequently. So that's like, but, you know, so that's another word that means, okay, now we're going to put a little different idea. So consequently, because of all this work in Christ, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. But now you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, as a consequence, this is the way you were, and if you remember the way you were, and then you remember the cost that Jesus paid and the difference that Jesus paid, then all of a sudden, now you are a citizen where you didn't belong. It's the reversal of verse 12. Of the first, it's, it's saying no, you didn't used to be a citizen. Now you are a citizen. Now you do belong. Now you do live in the same way. Now you have the same father. Now you have the same constitution binding you together. It's called the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus shed his blood to say this is now how you live together and how you relate to each other. Now all of a sudden you are no longer separate. Now you are citizens together living under the same rule, same constitution. As a matter of fact, he said, let's get a bit more relational on this sense. You are in fact the family. You are the household of God. You were separated, but now you are bound together in the most intense matrix of relationship that there is, family. Parents and children, brothers and sisters, one family with one father. You were an outsider and you were separate. But now you are bound together as a child who is loved and cared for by the father and by the siblings. You're the family. And then the last thing he says, which I just, I just get caught up in this stuff every time I think about it. As some of you know, because I'm always harping on. 
We're being built into a glorious temple. A glorious temple. Built on the foundation and apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone or keystone. It's a very rare word, and so they argue about which it is. It doesn't really matter. The point is that, that Jesus is the center of it all. Man, there's so much, there's so much that we could say about this, but let me just say four things. Number one, that this temple that we're being rebuilt in, this, this new temple made of flesh and not stones, this new temple is founded on Jesus and his teachings and the, through the prophets and apostles in the Bible. You see, when God is saying that, listen, you know what, all these relationships are broken down and all, you know, all those things that before and the circumcision become an idol, he's not saying that now it's a free-for-all. And now just anything and anybody and all those things are all just together and all just one. He's not saying that because what, he, what he's saying is that, listen, this unity is actually uh, dictated by Christ and the teachings of Christ in the prophets and in the apostles. They shape the temple. So it's built on that, this unity and this welcome of those things, but, but not everything fits. Only what fits in the temple are the things that Jesus say. Yeah, that's right. Second thing about this temple is that we're fitted together as stones into something greater. And the idea here is this, God will shape me. God will shape you. There are things in my life and there are things in your life that don't belong in the temple, that, that are rough edge, you don't fit together, you know, tight so you can't put a piece of paper in there. So God has to knock off some of my attitudes, some of my beliefs, some of my practices. He has to shape us as stones so that we will probably fit into this temple founded on Christ and the apostles. And so he knocks off and he continually shapes me to fit into the place of the temple that he's building that really works for me. And the third thing is what he's saying is that he's creating us into a people who are a place of worship. There's another Isaiah passage that lies underneath it. It's Isaiah uh, chapter 56, verses 3 through 8. And it's this whole thing that, that Isaiah was saying, you know, the day is going to come when the Gentiles are going to come and going to be welcomed into the temple of Israel to worship God. And what he's saying here is that, listen, you guys, if we want to talk about unity, we want to talk about overcoming our relational strains, there is nothing more powerful than worshiping together. It's, it's why communion is the center of our worship service. Because right here, after we've sung songs about the glory of God and the beauty of his creation and all of those things, we come together and we say, and so because of Jesus, we eat a meal together because we are bound together. And I'm inviting you into my home to eat with you because I love you and we're going to get past any difficulties that we have. Because there's nothing like worship to bind people together. You know, if you go sociologically, just, just set aside the whole worship with God being involved. I was reading here about a year ago that uh, they've done studies, and you know what the quickest way to bind a group of people together is? Singing together. It's one of the fastest ways to build bonds between people. Later on, it has to be, it only lasts a certain amount of time, then you've got to have other things. But, but, but God understands that, listen, when you will worship together, when you will come together, and you will focus on the cross, as Tim said here a few months ago, when we do that all together, then all of a sudden, things become different. We see things differently. Our mood is different. Our emotions are different. Our priorities are different. We're thankful. We process each other's data and relationships differently. There's nothing like it. So God says, listen, what I want you to do, I need you to understand that if you're going to have the unity and the beauty and the harmony and the glorious harmony I want you to have, worship me together. Because it'll change your life and it'll change your relationships. That's so why he has this image 
of the temple. The fourth thing, we need to remember that the church is secret. All kinds of different words to describe the different parts of the temple. And the word that's used to describe the church is the Holy of Holies. That most secret place where God himself dwelt. Where the Shekinah glory of God rested. He says, that is the church. That is where the Shekinah glory of God dwells and rests. And because of that, it's sacred. It's precious. And one of the greatest tools of the enemy is to bring about disunity in the body, in the church. Because when we do that, we violate that which is sacred. We violate and destroy that which is the dwelling place of God. It's the center of the temple. It's the dwelling place of God. It is sacred. And our communal body needs to be treated as precious and sacred and holy. So what's the bottom line? There's a pile of stuff. I know there's a pile of stuff there, and I only gave you half of it. What's, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is, first of all, that we were all far from God, and we were all far from each other. That things separated from God, and things separated us from the other, and they could even use the words sometimes of hatred, and we get to see all of that. But in through that, Christ shed his blood on the cross. Why? To give us salvation and to heal this vertical relationship, but also to heal our horizontal relationships. Also to make us a new humanity. Also to build us into a sacred, beautiful, glorious temple where God's spirit himself dwells. And so as we go through life, we've got a choice. And the choice is, in this situation, am I going to be an agent of destructive exclusion, building walls, turning out, destroying relationships, destroying people? Or am I really going to let the precious blood of Jesus take its rightful place in my heart and mind? And in this conversation, and in this situation, and in this tension, become an agent of glorious harmony with each other and in this desperately fractured world. Pray God, we become agents of the glorious harmony brought about and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Almighty God, it's easy for some of us to become destructive and to alienate and to cut out and destroy and all of these things. It's easy for me to make all kinds of things, good things, idols of my life. And then I, you know, I process what's going on around me and the people around me with, with the wrong lens. So help us, Jesus, to ensure that you are king to remember all that you've done, to remember how precious your blood is in comparison to the things that alienate us and help us, Holy Spirit, 
Holy Spirit. Help us to be agents of glorious harmony, reflecting the very character and work of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.